me pray for us here. Lord Jesus, we thank you for another Sunday to um, be blessed by you. Uh, Lord, we don't come here to be blessed, but we come here to bless. And yet when we come here to bless you, we find that you in turn bless us. And so we, we thank you for this great uh, gift that you give to us of Sunday and worship and church. And we can come here to hear your word taught and preached. We can, we can praise you. We can sing to you. We pray to you. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would bless this time that we have together and that you would use it to draw us closer to you. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, so go ahead and turn there. We're picking up right where we left off last week, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews 10, uh, starting with verse 19, and going all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 39. Um, By way of context, just while you're turning there, let me remind you, uh, I've been saying this over and over again throughout the series, and and you should uh, have this well in your mind by now, but I'll say it again. Uh, The book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ, the superiority of Christ to everything. But in particular, our author is wanting to emphasize Christ's superiority to all things in the Old Testament. And so he's, he's been doing that by showing how Christ is superior to various aspects of God's creation as well as the Old Testament. And so the book of Hebrews, under this main theme of the superiority of Christ, falls into seven major sections. I've been saying this. Hebrews is seven sections and six warnings. And so we are now today going to be moving into the sixth section of the book of Hebrews. The first section was about how Christ was superior to the prophets. Jesus is he's not an earthly prophet who just merely comes and announces that God's judgment is going to come. But Jesus is actually a greater prophet who is God's revelation, who is the word of God, and who not only proclaims the judgment of God, but actually is the divine judge of the world. So Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's superior to the angels because he is God himself. He really is the son of God. None of the angels are. And uh, Jesus is the... uh, Jesus is actually God, so he's better than the angels. Uh, The third major point was that Jesus is superior to Moses and Joshua. Uh, Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, we're told. And so that was the fourth section. Excuse me, the third section. The fourth section is that Jesus is superior to Aaron. And by that, we're talking about Aaron and all of the priests. So Jesus is superior to all of the Old Testament priests. And we spent a lot of time on that one because the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time on that one. And then the fifth section, which we finished last week, was all about how Christ is superior to the Old Covenant. And the author goes through and explains how Jesus is superior to the various major characteristics of the Old Covenant priesthood, the temple, and last week we saw the sacrifices. So we have now, in these five major sections, Christ superior to all these various offices and facets. But now in section number six, which we're moving into this morning, we're getting into more of the author of Hebrews' practical section. All right, not that doctrine isn't practical, right? But what he's going to do here is he's going to now begin to draw out more clearly 
and more profoundly the various implications that the superiority of Christ leads to. Right? What, what does all of this stuff we've been saying about Christ up to this point mean for actual New Testament believers right now? That's what our author's concerned with. And so in our passage today, as we get into this sixth section, the, the implications of Christ's superiority, we find three chief implications in this passage. All right? And so I'm going to read this passage for you, and then I'll give you the three major implications that we're going to talk about this morning. And they're all very important. So let's look now. Hebrews chapter 10 beginning with verse 19 and going to the end of the chapter. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, pers- and preserve their souls. <coughs> As our author moves now into this section of the implications of the superiority of Christ for his readers and and therefore for us, here in this section, he wants to give us three chief implications. Now, there's going to be a lot of different implications about the superiority of Christ that we're going to see 
as the weeks go on. But he gives three specific ones here in this passage, all right? And the first one is assurance. And he wants us to have assurance of our salvation because of the work of Christ as high priest. And secondly, is he wants us to assemble and to stir up one another. That's a second implication. And then the third implication is to look forward to our inheritance, looking forward to the future, full grasping of the inheritance that we have through the work of Christ. Okay? So we have assurance, assembling together, and looking forward to our inheritance. And we're going to see how he traces these themes out because each one leads to the next. So assurance. This is coming in verses 19 and following of the passage. And notice what he says here. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, you notice how he begins this section, verse 19. He begins with the word, therefore. And those kind of words, just FYI, they're really important to watch when you're tracing, especially in the epistles, when you're trying to trace the, the discourse of the apostles, trying to understand the, the flow of what they're saying. Because the word, therefore, well, well, we sort of know what it means. It's good to just sort of stop and think about it for a second. Because the word, therefore, means that everything that we have said beforehand now is going to lead us logically to this next stuff that I'm going to talk about. Right? So this is how we see. This is the implications. These are the things that are true and that we must heed because of everything that we've said before. That's what therefore is symbolizing. So just think about that for a second. Therefore, right, since we have confidence, since Christ has opened the curtain, since we have a great priest over the house of God, right? they're summarizing basically everything he said in this book up to this point. Right? He says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And this reminds me a lot, actually, of our shorter catechism. Uh, question 100 of the shorter catechism asks this. It says, what doth the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us. Right? And you know that the last few questions of the Shorter Catechism are questions about the Lord's Prayer. And the preface to the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father, who art in heaven. Right? We say this every week in church, uh, during the worship service. And here's what the answer to this question is. What does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? It says, The preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is, Our Father, who art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God in holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and willing to help us. Now, the only way that we can, with holy reverence and confidence, draw near to God is through the work of Christ. So I think this is something that, that we sort of we know this a lot of times, right? We know that it's the work of Christ that allows us to come to the Father. But I think it's helpful to just stop and think about that for a second. God Almighty, 
who created the heavens and the earth, made everything simply by speaking it into existence, is not the father of everybody. Right? He's not the father of every human being. Now, I suppose you could say in a general sense he's a father because he made everybody. Okay, fine. But in a saving sense, he is not a father of everyone. He is only the father of those who are in Christ. And so in the Lord's Prayer, we are taught to address God as believers as our father. And we have that relationship to Almighty God, not because we are worthy of it, not because we are his creatures, but we have that special, close relationship to our Father who is able and ready to help us because of this work of Christ that our author in Hebrews has been expounding for ten chapters. It is because of Christ's work as our sacrifice and his work as high priest that we can come to God as Father. And so, because of that, because of this great work of Christ, the author of Hebrews here tells us in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full, what? Assurance of faith. It's the same thing that the catechism says. We can come and we can approach God with holy reverence and confidence. That is, when we come to the throne of God as those in Christ, because of his work interceding for us and dying for us and giving us his righteousness, we come to God not timidly. Now, we come to him with holy reverence, for sure, not not, pridefully. But when we come, we come with confidence. Why? Because we are assured of our salvation. Because our salvation is not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ has already done and what the Holy Spirit does in us. And so we can draw near to this holy God, the train of whose robe fills the entire heavenly temple. And we can do that with confidence. And we can enter these holy places with full assurance of faith. And so in verse 23, he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Because of this work of Christ, not only is there an implication that we can draw near to God in confidence, but we have a guarantee that God will fulfill his promises. God has fulfilled his promises in the past by doing exactly what the Old Testament prophets said he was going to do. Send his son to die for his people to accomplish full, final, lasting forgiveness of sins. And so because God has kept his promises in the past, we can hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. We can hold fast to the fact that we hope in God's future promises. Because remember, we don't yet fully experience The great goods of God's covenant. Now we experience them in an already aspect, right? Because we're justified now. We're not any more justified now than we will be in the future. We have the righteousness of Christ. And so we've got many of the benefits of salvation. But we haven't experienced yet its full consummation. We're waiting for glorification, for example. We don't have our new resurrection bodies 
We are not yet with Christ in His full glory in heaven. We do not yet have the new heavens and the new earth. And so we are awaiting. We are hoping. We are, we are having faith in God's future promises that are coming. And so because we've seen God be faithful in the past, we can look forward to the future and we can have full confession of our hope that he who's promised is faithful. Okay? So that's the first implication of all this business about what the author of Hebrews has been dealing with for 10 chapters. And this is huge. This is so important that we can have full access to God and that we have full assurance of our salvation. All right, that's the first implication. Now, second implication is also very, very important. And this is coming in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's two aspects to this one to this particular implication. Right? The first one is we stir up one another to faith and, and uh, good works, or love and good works, as he puts it here. Right? Now, this is important, right? This is part of the task of the body of Christ. This is part of the task of the church. This is part of the task of why we come together. We come together to hear the word, of course, and, and to praise God and all that. Absolutely. But part of the task of the church also is that the body of Christ is encouraging one another and building each other up in faith, love, and good works. And now this is not legalism. This is not legalism. We're not talking about things we need to do to be saved in the strictest sense or to be justified. We're talking about what we do in joyful response to being saved, in joyful response to the gospel. And we know, as you've heard this over and over again, True, genuine, saving faith produces works. And so part of the task of the body of Christ in light of this great work that Christ has done for us is to encourage one another and as, as the author puts it here, stir up one another to holy living. To hold each other accountable, if you will. And this is precisely why he says that we ought not to neglect to meet together. See, not, verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because our author knows that the body of Christ cannot stir one another to holy living if they're not meeting together. Right? The logical implication is we've got to be meeting together. And so now what we have by the authority of Scripture is that coming together as Believers is a moral requirement for Christians. Translation, coming to church is not optional. It is not optional for the Christian. And we live in a day and age, and then this is always, this has kind of happened in all of history, right? But especially today, we live in a day and age where there are many Christians who, who believe that their Christian life Ideally, should consist purely in themselves and Jesus. Right? Now, that's great. If, you know, they, we want to have a relationship with Christ. Absolutely. That's awesome. But there are many Christians today who, on the basis of that, want to sidestep the body of Christ. They want to sidestep the church. They don't think they need the church. 
This is particularly common among uh, young Christian college students, I've noticed. Um, you know, the, and this is something one of my professors pointed out at RTS, and I think he's right about this. He says, you know, when college students go choose colleges, he says, it's great. I mean, choose the college that's got the right degree, you know, the right scholarships, all this kind of business. That's awesome. But one of the things that's tricky about that is you, you see these students always picking colleges, but there's almost no thought whatsoever given to what church they're going to go to when they go to that college. And so they kind of they go to college, and then they're like, well, what, well, where am I supposed to go to church? I guess I didn't really think about this until suddenly I'm there on Sunday morning, and I don't know what to do. If you try a few places, and then the, the college students fall, and they don't really end up getting truly plugged into a good body of Christ in that area. And I'm picking on college students for a second, but that's not just because college students are the only ones who do this. This is a massive problem in Christianity, where people think that the, the extent of the, the preaching that they need is on faith radio and not in the church itself. And that's, that's terrible. Because we have here in Scripture an absolute mandate to Christians that they need the church. You need the body of Christ. You need the church. You need to come on the Lord's day and to praise God, and to pray to Him, and hear His word proclaimed. And it's not because you do this in order to be justified. We're not talking about, about doing things that get you into heaven. Coming to church is not going to get you into heaven. I don't think I need to repeat that. We all know that. But, not coming to church can sometimes be a very clear indication that there may not be genuine faith present in the person. This is precisely why Paul, immediately after saying that it is necessary to gather together as God's people, he says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now notice, as soon as Paul says it is necessary to come together and stir one another up for good works, he says, by the way, if you go on sinning deliberately, that is, if you go on living a sinful lifestyle, a lifestyle that does not take seriously this reality that we come together as a church and stir one another up, if you live a life like that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because going to church saves you? No. But what happens is because not doing the things that God requires on a consistent basis, on a deliberate basis, is may in fact be evidence that there is no genuine saving, justifying faith in the individual. Right? And so this, by the way, just as a side note, is one of the reasons why Historically, in Presbyterianism especially, church discipline is so important. One of the tasks of the elders, according to our book of church order in the Presbyterian Church in America, is to keep an eye on the members of the church and their attendance at the local church. Now, why is that? Is, is it because Presbyterians just like to, you know, lord power over people and we just like to really, you know, get in people's business and stuff? Well, maybe, maybe there's a you know, 
maybe human nature just likes to do that in general, I guess. That, that, there might be something to that. But no, that's not the reason, though, why that is included in the book of church order. The reason why that's included is because the elders of churches have a responsibility to take care of the members of the church. Remember, members of the church take an oath to submit to the authority of the church, and particularly to the authority of the elders. And so it is the task of the elders to keep an eye on the members of the church and their attendance at the church. Now, why? Because they like to get in people's business? No. I don't know very many elders that enjoy getting in people's business. It's a very uncomfortable task sometimes. But the issue here is because of Paul's strong, or excuse me, not Paul, the author of Hebrews, whoever this is, his strong words, right? The author's strong words here. We cannot go on sinning deliberately, doing things that the Bible does not admit. And so what the elders are doing is they are protecting the congregation. They are protecting wayward members who do not attend, right? That is a good biblical task and something that should be supported and something that should also be a warning to all of us because we need to take seriously the injunctions of Scripture. All right, all right that's enough of that. You see what he's saying here. All right, that's the second implication then. So the first implication is assurance. Right? The second implication of all this teaching is that we need to meet together and stir one another to good works. And notice there... That here the apostles making very clear that even in light of Christ's absolute finished work as our great high priest, there is still a responsibility in our response to Christ's work of faithful obedience to God. Not because that obedience of ours saves us, but because it is something required of true, genuine, saving faith. Right? It is the fruit of it. And so we've got to take that seriously as well. All right, so now we get to the third implication, and this comes in verse 32 and following. Here's what he says. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew, and here's the key, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now notice what he's saying. Remember, he's writing to, to Jewish Christians who are being tempted right now to abandon the Christian faith. And our author is saying to them, he's saying, guys, listen... When you first became saved, you were persecuted, you were undergoing all kinds of trouble, and yet you persevered through that trouble. Why? Because you understood that you have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from you. You have an inheritance in the future promises of God in which you are placing that full confession of your hope. And so do not let go of those promises. Do not throw away your confidence, he says. You have need of endurance. Where are you going to get this endurance? 
How are you going to persevere through the troubles of this life, through the people who oppress, through the people who say what you believe is not true? How are you going to endure through that? The answer is looking to that future inheritance, looking to the promises of God that we have in Christ. And it's here that our author quotes from the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. And this comes, this quotation here, comes from the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I, I get confused about how to pronounce his name. Joey, how do you pronounce the name? Habakkuk. You say Habakkuk? Robert, what do you say? Rhymes with Habakkuk. <laughs> right. So I've heard Habakkuk, I've heard Habakkuk, I've heard... Actually, those are really the only two I've heard, but strictly speaking in the Hebrew, it's Habakkuk. So, I mean, we have all three options. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm just going to say Habakkuk, and we'll go with that. But anyway, our author quotes from Habakkuk here, Habakkuk chapter 2. And in the context of Habakkuk, right, this is, Habakkuk is having a series of, of conversations with God. And Habakkuk is thoroughly troubled. And here's why he's troubled. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, here's what he says. He's talking to God here, and he says, Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And you can see Habakkuk's concern there. He's saying, God, I'm living in a world of sin. I mean, all around me. There's licentious wickedness. Where's your justice, God? I mean, are you asleep? Do you, do you really know what's going on? Justice is perverted and you're doing nothing. And it can sure seem like that's very applicable to us today, can't it? This is how I feel whenever I see the news or these days whenever I'm, I'm watching uh, something on Hulu and, and half the commercials are, are about pride. I'm like, boy, this licentious wickedness everywhere and I can't. It's like, God, where are you? That's what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, God, where are you? Where is your judgment? How am I going to persevere through this? And here's what God says. And this is the same application that the author of Hebrews is making here. Verse 37 of Hebrews 10. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's what God says back to Habakkuk. He says, look, man, my judgment is coming. You don't worry about that. It's not asleep. It's on its way. But in the meantime, while you live in this world of sin, here's what you need to do. You need to live by faith. You need to live by faith. Now, the author of Hebrews knows that Faith is not something we muster up ourselves and pull up our bootstraps. Faith is the work of the Spirit in us by the power of God. But this is a genuine call to us. That in the midst of all of the the wickedness that surrounds us, we can endure through this by the power of the Spirit through faith in our internal inheritance. The promises of God that we have in Christ. And this is precisely why the author of Hebrews now Concluding the chapter in verse 39, he says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, pers- and preserve their souls. 
In other words, the author of Hebrews is confident that God will preserve his people through faith. And so you can see then that here, out of this great doctrine of the priesthood of Christ and of his once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, there are three things that we need to keep in mind. One is we can have absolute assurance of our salvation. Two, we need to meet together and stir one another up to love and good works. And thirdly, through faith, we look to the promises of God, which is precisely what is going to give us the strength to endure in this life and make it to the end. Those are some profound implications. And we're going to see some more when we get there next week because this this doctrine of persevering and enduring through faith is what leads the author of Hebrews now into chapter 11, which is the great chapter on the doctrine of faith. And so we'll look at that next week. But let me close us in prayer this morning. Lord God, we rejoice this morning that we have these wonderful implications from the doctrine that the author of Hebrews has expounded to us. Lord, we can have assurance of our salvation. We can enter confidently before the throne. Lord, we thank you that you've given us the church, the body of Christ, that we can come together and be be stirred up. And Lord, we also thank you for the great future promises that we have and that it is your work in us that creates faith and that strengthens faith and that preserves us all the way to the end. So, Lord, we thank you for all of these great gifts that you've given to us, and we pray that you would work in us to live faithful lives to you. And prepare us now, Lord, in light of all of this, to come before you in holy worship, and to praise you, sing to you, pray to you, and to hear your word preached. And so, Lord, we pray that you would receive all the honor and the glory today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.